Lord, thank you so much for uh, just this this time to get to gather around your word. Um, thank you for this amazing, amazing uh, bit in Romans from the Apostle Paul, where he just opens up the gospel. Maybe, maybe my favorite passage in the whole Bible. Uh, so rich, and it's rich because it tells us about uh, what you have done through your Son Jesus Christ to to save us the one way of salvation. So we bless you tonight, Lord. I just ask that you would, the unfolding of your word would give light. Uh, There would be heat and light that your real presence would be among us to save and to sanctify and to help us to see your beauty and power and glory in the gospel and the salvation, um, in your salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you fill us with great joy and understanding? And would it change our lives? and help us to love Jesus more, and, and result in, in many being saved. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay. So, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was probably the greatest 20th century preacher in, in Great Britain. He's a Welshman that preached in England, but they call him a doctor because he was a medical doctor. And, uh, he had a great career ahead of him, and God called him to the ministry, and he, he followed that call. And so he, he preached at Westminster Chapel for decades and retired, I think, in the late 70s. Um, so Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, extremely, like, thoroughly reformed, also charismatic, uh, ext- thoroughly reformed, biblicist, just loved the scriptures, preached expositionally, very conservative doctrinally and biblically. He said, I say it with trembling. But sin is a problem, even for God. I say it with trembling, but sin is a problem, even for God. You know, if you, if you turn all the way left in your Bible and just start with the first chapter, um, God, God is assumed in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that, is, that first verse is a summary of the fact that he made everything. There's God and there's everything else. And he speaks by fiat and he creates ex nihilo out of nothing. And in six day, in the space of six days, he breathes out by his own fiat, by his own command, by his own word, he breathes out all things. And then he rests on the seventh day and he gives us a pattern for the week. And very nice. Oh, wow. Um, and it was easy for him to do. Um, the rest of the Bible, I mean, very quickly with astonishing and, and devastating speed, we, uh, we ruin everything by turning away from God, by choosing to go our own way, and sin enters our hearts, cuts us off from God, and uh, enters into all of the creation that we, that human beings, God's only image bearers, have dominion over. And so because sin corrupts all of us and death sets into us, death sets into all creation. And, and super quickly... Um, Really, for the rest of the Bible, what, for the rest of the Old Testament, what you see after God making everything in the space of six days is um, God, uh, we, we, we sin, we stray from him, and then for the rest of the Hebrew Bible, God is preparing a people for himself who are constantly straying from him and sinning and preparing for the day that he will bring them back. And they're constantly, as he's creating them for himself and trying to bring them back and trying to redeem them, um, and he has a plan. It's not like he's trying and he's failing. He has a plan. But the rest of the, the Hebrew Bible, the rest of the Old Testament is a, basically a story of their, their straying from him. 
And um, he is constantly preparing for the day when he's going to take care of the great problem of sin. Um, then in the fullness of time, as, as we know, God sent forth his word again, as he did the first time in creation. He spoke and made all things, but this time it was in the person of his very self, his very son, the word incarnate, not to make the world, but to remake the world in a way that blew everybody's minds. Um, even those that he had told over and over again, this is how I'm going to save you. This is how I'm going to remake the world. This is how I'm going to fulfill the promise of the scriptures. It still surprised us all. And, and so um, he made everything in the beginning in six days out of, out of fiat. The rest of the Bible is about him preparing to come and to save us. And, it, and what it cost him to save us was everything. It cost him his very self. It cost him his very son and his own life. Um, and so we're going to, to look at what it cost him tonight, finally. We've been sort of held under for four or five weeks, under the water, as it were, underneath um, the wrath of God, seeing that our own behavior, our rebellion, our sin, um, it, it uh, provokes God's righteous wrath. It shows us his righteousness, and it shows us our deep unrighteousness. But tonight we get to see the righteousness of God for the salvation of mankind. And it's, and it's so glorious. What a glorious passage. So three points, and then I'll go ahead and read the text. Um, the righteousness of God for sinners spotlighted. Okay, the righteousness of God for sinners spotlighted. Again, and, and as you hear that, you might be thinking, well, that's, that's what Paul said in Romans 1.17. That's, uh, that's, that's what he said um, the gospel shows us, and that's really the thesis for the book. So he's been showing us... Um, the wrath of God against human unrighteousness for two full chapters. And now he's going to say, okay, now God's righteousness is revealed, not to damn us, but to save us. So the first point is the righteousness of God for sinners spotlighted. The second point is the cross destroys boasting. Paul starts to make that point in 27, verse 27, Romans three twenty-seven, And then finally, the cross justifies everyone. The cross justifies everyone. Uh, Point three. So we're actually just going to, as I was putting this lesson together today, I really just went, you know what, as, um, we're just going to go line, we're just going to go verse by verse because I don't want to miss anything. And some lessons don't yield themselves to that, especially if you have a whole chapter or something. But I really, this text is so rich. I'm going to let it guide us. It always guides us because we always try to unpack God's actual word, but we're really just going to go line by line as we walk through these three points. So the first, the righteousness of God for sinners spotlighted. Verse 21. Let me start with a quote before we jump into the text. Um, Christopher Watkin, he writes this. He writes, the cross is the eruption of something new into the world. Something nonlinear. Something that does not simply follow the predictable unfolding of cause and effect. Forgiveness, ransom, and reconciliation introduce an anomaly into the grim ledger of sin and death. Into the monotonous drumbeat of the one who sins is the one who will die, Ezekiel 18.20. It syncopates an insistent but. And really what he's referring to here, and certainly even if he's not, I'll apply it to this, is the first word in your text tonight. Paul starts with what I call and what commentators can't resist calling and this is a bit crass, but I think I said it last week, the big, maybe the, it's, the, it's a huge but. It's, it may be the biggest but in the Bible, right? Not double T. It really may be the biggest adversative conjunction, the biggest contrasting conjunction in the Bible. It's this huge, like I said, for, the, for, for two full chapters, we've been held under the water of God's wrath, 
justly manifest against our own sin and rebellion. That's what we deserve. Um, and the law shows us how crooked we are. But God's perfect and good word shows us how, how evil and how corrupt we are. We can't keep it. Um, to have it is not enough. You have to keep it, and we don't. We break it. And so the law has no power to save us. So Paul starts in verse 21. So let me just go ahead and read verse 20. For by works, he's kind of wrapping up everything, his whole argument. For by works of the law, he says in Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being, okay? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, okay? And then verse 21, but, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Here it is, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, okay? So, um, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Um, but he says the law and the prophets, and by, by saying the law and the prophets, he means the whole Old Testament, the whole Hebrew Bible, all right? The law and the prophets, the whole Hebrew Bible points to this thing that shows us God's perfect righteousness, but it's not the law, okay? But the law has, is, has told us about it. The prophets have told us about it, but it's not the actual law. It actually has the power. It shows us God's righteousness with the power to save us instead of damning us. The law only has the power to show us God's goodness and his righteousness, but we don't keep it, and so it, it justly condemns us. Like we talked about last week, like a, maybe last week, like a mirror that shows me the scar on my face, but it can't. It has zero power to actually change, change that scar. Um, that, that's what the law is, right? Um, so, but the law and the prophets point to it. That word uh, point to it in the, in the, um, in the Greek is the, um, it's the verb form of the noun witness from which we get our word martyr. So the entire Old Testament witnesses to how in the fullness of time, God would placard his righteousness for the world to see. A righteousness, like I said, that does not damn us, but saves us. The law shows us God's righteousness and that condemns us because the law can't change us. But something other than the law, something outside the law, as Paul said, something apart from the law, but pointed to by the law, also shows us God's righteousness. And unlike the law, this thing has the power to change us. It both shows us God's righteousness and is able to change us. And the law points to it. What is this thing? What is this thing, Paul? Um, Jesus. Okay. I think I was supposed to read the entire text. I did not. I got carried away. So let me go ahead and do that now. And then we can, and then we can keep walking through verse by verse. But now, what a transition. After weeks, we guys have been, we've been walking together after weeks of being under the water under the wrath of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Whew, all the law and prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. A lot of this is review. We've been, Paul's pulling on what he's, the arguments he's already been making, right? So this should be like, yeah, I, I get this. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. 
By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So, this word manifested means that it's been made plain. It's been revealed. That word is is a word that means that it's been revealed especially to the senses. So, the sense that Paul's giving here is that, um, that God's righteousness has been put on a billboard, as it were, for all to see. The revealing... Uh, means this thing has been exposed to the public. Okay, that's just straight from a Greek dictionary as to what this word means here. Um, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So there's a sense in which what God has done now apart from the law and the fullness of time through his son, which we'll get to, we know this is Jesus he's talking about, okay, Um, is that he has shown us through his own son his righteousness and particularly through the cross in such a way that he's made a public spectacle of it. He has shown it in a way to all mankind for all of space and time, in a way that you cannot avoid it, um, and that it is especially present to the senses, to the eyes, to the ears. So it's it's, God has, has made it so that no one can not see how he has demonstrated his righteousness apart from the law and yet the law points to it. So that's one sense of the word manifested. Um, Now in the fullness of time at the right time, this thing that shows us God's righteousness, which is really, we'll say, we'll explain righteousness in a variety of ways when we have, but his inflexibility when it comes to punishing sin and evil. That's one way to think about God's righteousness. He does not flex at all in punishing sin and evil. Every bit of sin and evil, because God is fully good and fully just, must be punished and will be punished by God. There will be no unpunished sin and evil in the end. Every bit of it will be punished, either in in us or in Christ, if we've hidden in him by faith, and we'll we'll get there. Um, So now in the fullness of time, at the right time, this thing that shows us God's righteousness and has the power, unlike the law, right? The law shows us God's righteousness, but it doesn't have the power to change us. It also has, this thing also has the power to change us. It's at last been revealed. The curtain has been pulled back on it, is another way of think about, to think about this word manifest. It has been made plain for all to see. Um, and also, that, we, that idea of God making his righteousness plain in a saving way for all to see, is kind of, Paul kind of picks up on that again in verse 25, where he says, he's talking about Jesus, right? Whom God put forward. God put him forward. As, and we'll get to that verse. He put his own son forward so that you can't miss him. He's this singular, outstanding uh, thing that placards God's righteousness in a saving way for all who look to, this, to Jesus. Um, so he puts him forward. Um, that is, God showcased his seriousness about saving us and about punishing sin by placarding his son on the cross at the crossroads of the world, right? At the crossroads of history, at, at the fullness of time, when everything was perfect, when, the, when Rome 
had defeated Carthage in the Punic Wars, and then a couple hundred years later, and the, the empire was, had created roads and a system of laws, and, and Alexander the Great, hundreds of years before that, had, had unwittingly, uh, he'd conquered the known world, and so he'd created this, this, ling, this lingua franca, this common language, Greek, and this common culture, the Hellenization of all these. And so you, you had this, you, the world was ready for the coming of, of the Son so that the news of his deliverance, of his demonstration of God's righteousness in a saving way for any who look to him, Jew and Gentile alike, could, could go out through this system of Roman roads and laws and this system, common culture and common language. It could go out through the arteries of the known world because of, so it was the fullness of time. It was also at the crossroads of the world. I mean, think about the Middle East. I mean, uh, I think uh, right there where Israel is is the only place that three continents touch. And, um, and so it's like the navel, it's been called like the navel of the world. It was the perfect, it was in the center of history at the exact right time in the exact right place. Um, God placarded his righteousness in a saving way through his son, Jesus Christ. So let's move, let's move to verse 22. Um, verse 22. So, so this, this righteousness of God has been manifested. It's apart from the law. The law and prophets bear witness to it though. 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Um, that, that, and I think we've talked about this before in a, in a, in a text, well, in, in 118, but we have the phrase again here, the righteousness of God. Okay? This... Um, this preposition can also mean just as it does in 1 verse 17, in Romans 1 verse 17. And this is one of the things that blew Luther's mind and heart, Martin Luther, the great reformer 500 years ago, and set the West aflame with, with an understanding of the gospel. And that is this. It, it does mean righteousness of God as it's translated, but it also means a righteousness, here it is, from God. You see? What Jesus shows us is the, right, the very righteousness of God, but it's also a righteousness not from you, not required of you by perfect law-keeping and good behavior, but it's a righteousness from God himself applied to you through faith, received. God, not your righteousness, someone else's, God's himself, applied to you, received through faith, not through your good behavior, through his good behavior. God himself. It's a righteousness from God through faith, the open hand that receives all that God is offering. And he's offering his very self, his very son. It's like an empty pipe to use another metaphor. It's an open hand. Faith is an open hand that receives. It's the anti. Some people say, well, okay, do I have to have enough faith? Well, isn't faith a work? I have to have good enough. No, no, no. Faith is the anti-work. This is, I got this from Wayne Grudem. He just explains it so clearly in his systematic theology. But it's, faith is, is the opposite of work. It's saying, no, I can't. And so, I have to receive, I have to receive, I can't, I can't work, I can't make myself, but you've, you've done it, and so I receive what you've done. I can't do it. Faith is the anti-work. Um, it's a posture of humility. Um, it's like an empty pipe. It's like a conduit through which the grace of God, the work of God for sinners flows. Um, so it says, for there's, uh, excuse me, um, the, verse 23, for all, what am I in? 22, the righteousness of God through faith but it's not through faith in just anything, through faith in the tooth fairy, through faith in Hinduism, through faith in 
whatever else you want to say. It's, it's through faith in one thing. In Jesus, in Jesus Christ. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, the, the way that God has sent for us to be saved. The righteousness of God and from God for anyone, for anyone at all, who looks to this Son who's been posted, lifted up for all to see and to, and to be believed on. Um, faith in Jesus alone. So it's for anyone, but there's only one, one way for anyone Jew or Gentile, to be saved. So you've heard this. It's like the most, Christianity is the, the, the true religion, if we can call it that, is the most inclusive. It's for anyone. Any race, any age, any, any gender. There are, there are only two. Let's just, we have to say that now. Okay. You may disagree, but it's biblical. We can talk about it later. Um, and, okay, so for, for anyone, uh, and, for any, and for any sin background you may have, from the worst of sinners to the least of sinners. But it's only one way. It's the, it's the most inclusive and it's the most exclusive. There's only one way. There aren't many ways up the mountain. It's the way God's provided. He would not have placarded his own son and put him on a cross for our sin if there were other ways up the mountain, if there were other ways to be saved. Okay, so um, it's for all, finally, in verse 22. There's no distinction, Jew and Gentile. And that's possible because it's through faith, and we'll get to that more. Verse 23, the, the famous Verse of the Roman road, right? We, a lot of times we, we put it on our fridge or we have it memorized and, we, and well we should, but we take it out of context. But we've, had, we've, kind of, we've come to this verse through all the other verses in Romans, so hopefully it bears, it's, it's, it, has, it makes more sense and it has more weight to us. For all have sinned. Okay, so for there is no distinction, verse 22, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's an equalizer. So the salvation's for everyone. Why? Because all need it. Jew and Gentile. Jews need it. And Paul's been arguing this, right, for the past two chapters, for, for us for the past four to five weeks. Uh, he turns his guns on everyone and says, hey, Jews, just because you have the law, that's, that doesn't, every, every, there's no, just, everyone, uh, no one is righteous, not a single person. And you have to keep the law to be righteous, and, and no one has, right? Um, so for all fall short of God's glory, that, that, that word glory, it, it means what you think it might mean in the Greek. Um, in, the, in the Hebrew, it means something different. Um, but in the Greek here, doxa, it means his shine, God's shining splendor or his magnificence. So that just speaks to me something about sin, that sin means not only judgment for us, but also loss of life and vitality and beauty. And there's a dullness and a, and a pallor and a pall and a darkness and a heaviness that comes over us in sin that leads to death. Being, being saved, therefore, doesn't just mean being delivered. It means being restored to the glory that we once had. I think if this isn't in the notes, but I, I, as I say that, I think about the restoration of a painting. You know, a really old painting that was once beautiful, and all of a sudden when it's restored by an expert, you can, start, start, you can see the vibrant colors and the, and the, um, the hand of the artist, and it's, that's one of the things that our salvation brings to us is this, this amazing restoration. It restores us to the glory of the living God. We're made in his image. We're supposed to bear his glory. And we're still in his image as sinners estranged from him, but it's like we're like a mirror that's been punched and it's completely shattered. Um, God, Jesus came to restore that. Um, we will bear his image fully once more. So let's move on to verse 24. Okay. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are now Paul's really starting to get some heavy 
Some, like, by heavy, I mean like some solid, solid the- theology. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Um, so, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Um, so, being justified as a gift, this language, it, it, really, means, it really means what it sounds like. It, it, we are justified for free. We are justified in the Greek dictionary that I was, that I was digging into. It literally says gratis. Okay, we have that word in our parlance, right? That word gratis. We are justified freely. It's free for us. That's part of, that's, that, that, that is the scandal of the gospel. Is that full justification, me, being, being um, declared fully right in good standing and not guilty before the living God. Being freed of, everything, of all the incarceration and slavery and death that sin brings. Being declared free of that. Um, that is free. It's completely gratis. It's a gift. A gift is something that you can't work for. That's kind of the definition of a gift. Mm-hmm. It ceases to become a gift the minute you say, well, I worked some for that. That's not a gift. It is, this complete liberation is absolutely free as we look to Christ. That, that is the beating heart of the gospel. And some people just can't handle that. Because so many other things in life that are, that are worthwhile, we go hard after and we work for. And well, we should. Well, we should. But when it comes to our standing before God, we absolutely cannot. That's one of the things the gospel shows us. We can't. Working for it, as Paul has been laboring to show, especially the Jews, it, that, that doesn't work. We can't do it. And so God did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Um, so it's gratis, it's free, it's a gift. In Christ, by Christ, through Christ, we've been declared right with God. That's what justified means. You have been, de- it's a declaration. It's like, if you can imagine, like in a courtroom, um, the judge says, um, not guilty. It's a declaration by the judge after proceedings. And not guilty, therefore, there's no more sentence on you and you're free to go. It, hasn't, it doesn't change the actual constitution of the person in the courtroom, but that person's status, that declaration means that person's free to go. That's what this word means. When, the minute you look on Christ, you are declared, you are declared righteous, you are declared not guilty, you are declared free. And that is, because, that is, that is looking to Jesus. That status is conferred on you. It happens all instante. It happens instantaneously. The minute you do that, and I'm getting, this isn't in the text, but it's in, it's in the scriptures. The minute you do that, you're declared not guilty. No one is ever declared not guilty through looking at Jesus without his spirit, the spirit of the living God himself coming to live inside of you. When that happens, you are a new creation in Christ and you by, uh, for the rest of your life, I was going to say by steps, in slow measures, right? Sometimes slower than we might like. You become, you are conformed more and more to the image of the one that you trust in, Jesus Christ. And that too is every bit as much by Christ as the declaration, instant declaration of not guilty. You're justified instantaneously, then you are over your lifetime sanctified. You're actually made 
more and more like Jesus. But the status is, that's, that's the thing that, Lew, that um, Martin Luther talked about when he said, the status of not guilty that's instant the minute you look to Jesus that can never, never change. It means you are a child of God, filled with his spirit, um, fully his, free from sin and hell and death. Um, that's, that's the phrase in trying to explain that that Luther used when he said, we are simul justus et peccator. We are at once, simultaneously, simul justus, justified, et peccator, and a sinner. Okay, so you, the, in that courtroom, your constitution hasn't yet changed, but you're the dec- your status has. You've been moved from death to life. You've been moved from guilty to not guilty because you've looked on the, on the Savior. And so, um, and it's available for anyone, Jew and Gentile, no matter, no matter your race, no matter your gender, no matter your age, no matter your, your, uh, your history. Yeah. Can you say the definition of that in Latin phrase one more time? Oh, simul See, this is when, oh, I have this. Um, simul justus et peccator is, um, and I know we've got some folks that either do Latin or do a romance language that can help with this. You, you said, you, well, Laurent's our French speaker. You speak French. Um, okay, simul justus. Justus is tough because it's justice, right? It just doesn't sound. Et. Okay, so, simul, simultaneously, right? What does that look like? Justice. Just. So, just, 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 and. or righteous, same thing. And. Simultaneously, just, and, okay? I'm not sure if it has two C's or one. Peccato, um, uh, uh, peccadillo, a little sin, right? Yeah. And a sinner, right? So, you remain a sinner, but you are justified. As someone who continues to sin, but your status is different now, okay? You've been declared righteous, and you've been moved from a sinner to a saint, from, to a child of God, okay? And that actually makes a real change in you as you are now his child. And, begin, and, and, and sanctification is every bit as much of a miracle and by faith. Uh, and it's a gradual process that happens throughout your life as justification, which is an instantaneous declaration. Glorification is when that process is complete, when you see Jesus face to face. Okay, so in Christ, by Christ, and through Christ, we have been declared right with God in a way that cost us nothing because it cost Christ everything. You see? I, I thought of Les Mis when I, when I wrote this. Um, um, I see Laurence uh, looking at me. She's probably read it in the French, which makes me envious. Um, you know, the priest, at the, toward the beginning of the, uh, of the book, the priest gives the, the candlesticks uh, that, that Jean Valjean, the thief, he's, I think he's gotten out of prison recently, and he takes these silver candlesticks. This, this priest has taken him in for the night and treated him with hospitality and kindness, and he, uh, he takes these silver candlesticks to thank the priest, you know, horrible. And he gets caught by the authorities and brought back and... The, uh, he, I think he takes a candlestick, and the, um, the priest says, uh, when, the, when the police are there, he says, is, is police gendarme, by the way? Oui. Oui, haha. I don't know why that just popped in my head. Um, the priest, to cover for him so he doesn't go off to prison for the rest of his life, says, hey, I gave him this, and by the way, you forgot the other candlestick, right? And he gives him, he gives him the other silver, silver candlestick. And that grace... Um, that, that mercy that he has on him wrecks Jean Valjean, changes his life. It's so much more powerful than, than hatred. It's so much more powerful than, um, 
than his getting his pound of flesh. It, mel- it melts his heart. It changes his life. Um, and, and what we are given by God for free, undeserving as we are, is infinitely greater than a pair of silver candlesticks. Infinitely, infinitely greater. Um, and infinitely less deserved. Should it not completely reorient our lives? Okay, so justified by what here in verse 24 still? Justified by what? What, is, what does the text say? What does Paul say? His grace. Okay, justified by his grace. Um, what then is this amazing grace? What does the word grace mean? Okay, it is, it is what saves us. It's what uh, justifies us. Nothing is more important. Um, what does the word grace mean? Charis in the, in the Greek. You might know somebody named Karis. I have Susanna has it. My daughter has a friend named Karis. Means grace. Some people are named Grace. What is? I'm sure it means more than that. Yeah. So it means, um, it means favor. It means favor. So we are saved by God's favor. And where did that favor? That kind of leads to the question: Where did that favor come from? How did how did how did we get favored of God? The next line. Um, in the next line, Paul tells us, right? So how does the verse read? And we're justified by his grace as a gift. And there it is. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Okay. Apollotrosis, redemption, means release from a captive condition. Okay. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption means a release from a captive condition. It's often accomplished through payment. Uh, for release from slavery. It's a mark. So redemption is a marketplace word, right? Jesus was our payment. He was how we, he was the payment that released us from the slavery of sin, which leads to death, eternal death. He secured your release and mine from captivity. How did he do that? Yeah, by taking our place, Uh by taking our place, by willingly submitting himself to the incarceration and eternal death although he beat it, right? But somehow in the mystery of God, he submitted himself to all that bound us by taking our place, by becoming a slave to sin, death, Satan, and hell. God himself chose to become a slave to all that enslaved you. Isn't that just mind and heart blowing? Oh, and that, writing that made me think of this movie. Um, it's a pretty good movie, but the ending makes it worth watching. And it's old. It's, it's, I think it's 90s, but Claire Danes, you remember her? It's called Broke Down Palace. Has anyone seen it? Yeah, okay. Perfect. Um, <laughs> the short of it is that I, I didn't even look it up. So it, I think they're in, they're in some Southeast Asian country, okay? She and a friend go on this trip, and they're like in college and irresponsible, and they all they have is backpacks, that kind of thing, you know? And, and somehow, I don't know the details, but they, they get caught with drugs on them. And it's her friend's fault. Her friend is the one that kind of, and, and maybe somehow Danes is, I mean, because she's her friend and maybe some weed was put in her backpack too, but it's like Thailand or something. And um, they both get thrown in this like Thai prison and it's bad. It's like, you're not getting three squares a day. Um, it's bad. And so, and I think it's sort of like, you're not getting out of here kind of thing, you know? And so um, her friend is well off and, and her friend's dad is, is trying to do everything he can to get him out of there. But the, but the authorities are just like, no way. And so they finally, they finally realize that um, it's Claire Danes' friend that's the one that 
is the reason that is the reason that the drugs were on them. And so there's this amazingly moving scene toward the end where they're in front of the magistrate in this big room, and her friend gets sentenced to essentially life in this prison. He's like, you're not going anywhere. You're on our turf. And um, Claire Danes runs. This is an amazing scene. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but she runs in between her friend and... Uh, it's powerful. And, uh, and the magistrate, and she says, take me instead. And uh, she pleads with him, and she starts, she's crying, and he, he's, he, she convinces him. She's like, just take me instead. Just, and so the judge says, fine. And so they take her away. And the, the last scene is her looking through the bars of the prison, like in this outdoor sort of courtyard with all these other prisoners milling around as this American and her friend um, goes and gets in like a Lincoln town car that her dad's provided with the driver and looks back at her and then she drives away. And, and it's just this, such this powerful scene. And of course, all, all I can see is Jesus and who's, who stepped in and, and endured something far worse than life in prison for us. Um, um, just just that, that powerful image of, um, of someone like that taking our place. Um, Jesus paid God for you with himself. This payment means that God now looks on you and on me and on anyone who looks to him by faith, not with wrath, not with the wrath that we deserve that we've been talking about for the past four weeks, but with favor, with favor. He looks favorably. This word means that God looks favorably on all who trust in Christ. Um, Just like he looks on his own son, Jesus, that's the favor that he looks on you with if you are in Christ by faith. When he sees you, he smiles. Why? Because he spent the frown you and I have earned on his beloved son. Now let's look at how God did this. This, verse 25 and 26, are the hot core of the gospel and the hot core of this passage. And they're some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Um, what does Paul say? So let's, let's keep reading. So Jesus, in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward. There's that, we, we looked at that a little bit earlier, we touched on that, whom God put forward, Jesus, Jesus was put forward by God as a propitiation, that's a big word, we'll, we'll, look, we'll unpack that a little bit, by his blood, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show, this is a powerful section, this was to show, why did God do this? It was to show God's righteousness. There we're getting into the core of Paul's argument in Romans, Right? This was to, he, he placarded his own son on the cross to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Okay, so let's look at the first phrase, whom God displayed. Um, the, it, whom God, it literally just means whom God put forward. Okay, so I, I put whom God displayed, but your, your uh, translation is whom God put forward. That's right. You know, I, and again, I didn't, I didn't look up the Claire Danes particulars because I seen I didn't look this up either, but I remember reading a story in, um, you know, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so the author Sally Lloyd Jones. She writes a number of other books for children, and one of them is like there's a story per page on it, and and they're all I believe true stories. This one certainly is, and it's a story. Um, I think it was during World War II. Again, I think it happened to be in Southeast Asia. In, in the in the in the in the Asian in the East Eastern theater, and it was a um, it's an account a historical a real event that happened where um, there was um, there were prisoners American prisoners of war, and they um, they did a roll call on the um, 
they were digging. They were using tools to do some sort of manual labor, and they they all they kept inventory of the um, the tools. And there was a shovel missing at the end of the day, and um, so the guy the the guy that was in charge of the group, he said, "Hey, someone stole a shovel. Where is it?" And nobody stepped forward, and um, and he he said, okay, and after much yelling and, and ranting and screaming, he said, "Okay, well, um, he, either he said I'm just going to start killing people randomly until someone confesses, or he said you're all you're all going to die." It was it was something drastic and draconian, and so a, a man stepped forward and he said, "I I did it." And, I mean, true story. And the man was summarily executed. Uh, later that night or the next day, they found the shovel. And of course, realized like it was just a miscount, like they just misplaced it. Nobody, uh, least of all this guy, had had stolen the shovel. Um, but just the idea that literally this guy stepped out of line, wasn't his, wasn't his fault, didn't do a thing, but to save everybody else, true story, said I did it, and he was executed. I mean, again, it's a flea bite compared to what Jesus did for us. Um, but again, we don't think about this enough. God the Father. Jesus was glad to do it. He agreed in the fullness of, in, in, um, before time ever began to. He he would be glad. He was glad to do this to save us, um, knowing what would happen, being fully sovereign. Um, but the Father also was glad to put him forward. The Son that not he hated, the Son that he loved, to save sinners that for most of space and time had been giving the middle finger to him, right turning from him, hating him, trying to be king themselves, trying to run their own lives, justly under his wrath. Um, he put his son forward to take the hit for us. Um, God put him forward, we're getting into the hot core of the gospel, to bear wrath that was ours to bear. That's what Paul's saying here. Um, God put him forward so the world could see him, as we talked about earlier, and believe on him. Specifically, Paul says, in his blood. His death, we're talking about the cross. It was a public spectacle. The Roman crucifixion was as public and as spectacle and as shameful as you could get. It was the way that the Roman state said, don't ever cross us. Because this is what will happen to you. And in the fullness of time, God picked that. He picked the nation state that executed the worst of its criminals in that way to die. So that... His son would be a spectacle to show how seriously he takes sin, how much wrath we deserve, and how deeply he loves us. This is the hot core of the gospel. Um, We can see and contemplate all that he did to pay the price to set us free from the slavery and incarceration of sin and death. Blood equals death, right? His death in place of your death. His life taken so that yours and mine can be spared. Um, the display of Jesus was a display of God's righteousness. It was to show God's righteousness. Um, it's funny. I I, uh, I have in my notes here, it says the word show means to give a... I literally, <laughs> I just I don't have the rest of it. The, the word show means to show. Um, it was to show us, and this really is, um, it's interesting that that I didn't finish that. That's so, because this really is such an important um, passage. It was to, okay, so whom God put forward as a propitiation, and that, 
That word, we're getting to that word right after this, propitiation, okay? So don't worry. I, I've skipped over it, but I'm not going to. Let me see if I deal with, he put forward, put him forward. Um, yes, I do deal with this. Okay, good. I don't know what happened there. Let's go to, let's go to the word propitiation, and then we'll come back to um, how, how God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Okay, so central. Okay, so it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation, by, Jesus was a propitiation by his blood, by his death in our place. Okay, some people argue that this word simply, this word in the Greek simply means expiation, which means a wiping away of, in this case, sin. To expiate is to wipe our sins away. Jesus on the cross certainly expiated our sin. He certainly wiped our sins completely away. That's one of the things we touch on when we celebrate communion, right? Um, but it means more than that. It means more than that. It means wrath-bearing. The word propitiation means that he didn't just wipe our sins away. He bore the wrath due us for our sin and law-breaking. Um, one one uh, D.A. Carson, a theologian, uh, he, he explains it this way. Expiation has sin as its object. Okay, so what do you expiate? Sin. You wipe away sin, and Jesus has done that for us. But this word propitiation, okay, has God as its object. You propitiate God. In this case, Jesus did. You make God favorable. What Jesus did in bearing the wrath to us was he bore the wrath so that God would not look at us, anyone who looks to Jesus, with the wrath due them, but rather with favor that was due Jesus. The great exchange, like Martin Luther talked about. Okay, Jesus gave us his favor and took the wrath due us. Um, the Greek word here is the word hilasterion, which means mercy seat. And that's really touching on, that's going to the architecture of the temple. Does anyone know, tell me, can anyone tell me about the mercy seat? Mercy seat is what the high priest sprinkled blood on when he entered the, the most holy place. Yeah, so the most holy place, one priest from one nation, God's own people, the Jews, one time a year, exactly, exactly, exactly as God dictated through his word, okay, um, going into the most holy place, the inner sanctum, one time a year with a rope around his ankle in case he got anything wrong and the presence of God you know, slew him, yeah, and he was pulled out on a rope because nobody else could go in there after him. You'd die too. Um, goes in with a bre- with an ephod, with a breastplate over him, symbolizing all of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's going in there symbolizing, in one person, he's representing all everybody who will come to God through blood sacrifice, and, and through that blood sacrifice, who will come to God in peace. And the presence of God comes down, and there's the Ark of the Covenant in there, and the cherubim, the angels, covering the Ark of the Covenant in incense, and God's presence comes down, through blood, through the sacrifice of an innocent, covering the guilty, they can be at peace with God in his presence. That's the only way it happens. And the blood is sprinkled on this hilasterion, on this mercy seat that is sort of the, 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 it's the centerpiece of this, um, of this Ark of the Covenant that God comes down and sits. It's between the angels. It's a recreation of... Uh, of, of what happens in heaven, where God is on his throne and he's surrounded by the cherubim and he's ruling, he's ruling creation. And he comes down to his sinful people and dwells with them. But how? He dwells with them uh, through 
as the blood of an innocent is, is placed on the mercy seat. And so what Paul is saying here is that that is all a pointer to Jesus, the one who would shed his blood for us and bring us perfectly into the presence of God, deserving wrath, but he took wrath by shedding his blood in our place. Um, he took the wrath of God. He took the penalty. He took the death. He became our sin. And so what we get is God's favor and God's smile. Um, hey, Taylor, yeah. can I just say a little just interesting thing? Of course. The mercy of, of course. Inside the ark went with three things. The budding rod of Aaron, the law, the Ten Commandments, and manna. What does that represent? Christ. All that. Aaron was the first priest. Christ is the ultimate priest. The uh, law, he came and he fulfilled the law. And he, he, he is the very God. word of God. He is mm-hmm. the bread of heaven. Right. Come down from, he's the bread of That's good. That's anyway, perfect. All that was. Compliment to this. That's it. All that. Inside the ark. Amen. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, that's good. So wrath, let's dig into wrath a little bit. Wrath is not God's vile temper. I'm quoting from, I think, Carson again. Wrath is not God's vile temper. It's not God flying off the handle. God doesn't fly off the handle. Um, it is a function of his holiness. Remember, I don't know if I told you all this or not, I, um, but the story of, of Jean, not this Jean. Jean was a sweet elderly woman. So here, it's not this Jean though. Not this sweet elderly neighbor of mine. Um, but Jean was a sweet, uh, older woman that we knew in Edinburgh at our church. And, um, she was telling us a story. She got, she's telling a story where she got really mad because there was, uh, she went into a petrol station, a gas station, and there was, um, there was pornography down, down here by your shins where the gum is and stuff as you're checking out. And it didn't have like a lot of times the the old days, the, the glossy porn magazines, they would have the, the nasty part would be covered, so you'd have to take the, the cover off to see whatever on the, on the front cover. But that, there was no cover on these. You could just see everything. And it was down here. It wasn't back behind. And, and she got so mad when she was telling us this story because it, the, she was for the children, the kids. She was like, I'm, and she, she did the old, you know, she shook, she gave it to him, man. You know, no, her, you know hell hath no fury like like Jean scorned. And so she shook her finger in this guy's face and the, the, her, his wife behind the counter was behind, was behind the husband just chuffed. She was just super, super uh, glad that Jean was giving him hell. And, uh, and she, I think Jean got special treatment at that petrol station after that by the wife. And, um, but my point is that, man, when she saw this injustice, when she saw this evil, uh, she got... I remember she got red in the face and she, as she was retelling the story, you could see the anger rising up in her. And that's because of her goodness. You know, the degree to which we are good is the degree to which evil angers us. You see someone being abused if, or you see any number of sins, you, or you hear about them, you are going to be angry at the injustice being done, at the sin, um, to the degree that you're, you're good. And if you don't care, then that shows that that's the degree to which you, you aren't good. You're evil, right? And so um, uh, all of this wrath against sin and evil is out of God's... He's, he always acts fully out of all his attributes. It's out of his goodness 
and it's out of his love for his creation that's being corrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why this can help us understand the prophecy of the Messiah in the last verse of Psalm 2, which helps. It's like the doorway along with Psalm 1 to the Psalter, to the songbook of God's people. And it says, this is, the, this is the verse that ends Psalm 2. It says, kiss the son, lest, it's a prophecy, of course, about the Messiah. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Why? For his wrath is quickly kindled. In other words, the smallest bit, here's what the Messiah is going to be like. The smallest bit of sin and evil infuriates him because he's that good. He, he will not countenance it. He will not countenance it. Uh, what is the next line of the psalm, the line that ends the psalm? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. To, the only safe place is to hide inside of the one who bore the wrath of God for us as the fire of God's holy and perfect wrath consumes the sun and you're protected. God in the, in the Psalms and in the Old Testament is constantly called a shield. Okay, He's a sun. He provide, he's the one who provides life. Life comes from him. And he's a shield. What does a shield do? And how does the shield, let's exegete this. How does a shield protect us? It reflects. It reflects it and what else? It stops the darts of the evil. Yeah, it, stop, it stops the blow, right? The blow's coming at me. Without a shield, I die. Whether it's from a sword or an arrow or a, um, a harpoon or a javelin, I die. But with the shield, I don't die because the shield takes the hit. The shield takes the blow. And that's what God has called over and over again. Jesus shows us how God is a shield. He shows us that in, in living color, you know, on full display. I've probably told this story before here or in a sermon, but not, maybe not in this class, but the story of the burn circle um, and how the true story, um, apparently the, the, uh, the pioneers as they were, as they were moving um, west across the, the plains um, and... and, um, and um, settling in, in, in the west, western portions of the United States, they would take all their stuff, you know, their caravans and their wagons and their families, and they would move west across the plains. And apparently, I've never been, I mean, you're from Omaha, right? So you've seen, and some of you guys have seen this as well probably, but the, the seas of, of high grass and the, plain, and the plains. And some people, it's so intense that just there's like nothing that breaks the horizon. And it's, like a, it's like an ocean, and it can and it can be yeah, up in northern Canada too, and it, or in Canada, southern Canada. It can be disorienting, like an ocean. Just like there's no there's no marker anywhere, and it's just as far as I can see, this, these plains of high grass. And as they'd be moving across the plains, the worst thing they 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 would see they learned was a, a flicker of fire in the in the far distance because that meant that meant a fire was coming, and the and the wind from the plains would would cause the fire to go quickly across the plains. And of course, everything around you is is combustible. It is feeding the fire, and so it would just—it would just devastate. It would just burn. It would just burn you up, burn your all your stuff up, burn your family up. There was nowhere to go, and so what they learned is that the only way to stay to to stay alive, to save their lives, was was a burn circle. They'd burn out before the fire got there. They would quickly burn out the grass around them, and they would get in the place in that burn circle where the fire had been, and the fire would pass over them as they stood in the burn circle without anything to consume, because here's the thing, the fire had already been there. The fire had already consumed that. And that was the only safe place to be. And that, this is, what Paul is giving us here is, is he's showing us that Jesus is that burn circle. He is the only, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. He is the only, by faith, 
safe place to hide from God's wrath because God will judge sin and evil, every bit of it. In Christ, he has judged it. If you look to him, he has judged your sin and evil, but he's put it on Christ. And if you are outside of Christ, if I am outside of Christ, we will be burned up for eternity by the just wrath of God against our sin and evil. But the good news is that Jesus came and he took our place. And this is the news that we have to preach and to proclaim. Um, on Christ's propitiation, um, Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan, he said, outside of Christ, God is terrible. Outside of Christ, that's, that, is a, that is a verse, that is, a, that is a, uh, a phrase to put on your mirror and to look at every day. Outside of Christ, standing, standing before God on our own merits will be a terrible encounter. I can assure you of that. Don't do it. Hide inside of the merits of Christ. Hide inside of his becoming a propitiation for you. A wonder, God becomes wonderful and smiling and full of favor. Uh, Richard Sibbs, mom. Verses 25 and 26. Why did God do this? Okay. This was to show, middle of verse 25, right? This was to show God's righteousness. Um, why did God do this? He put, why put his own son forward to bear the father's wrath against the sin of others? of creatures that he, uh, who he made, who turned away from him and against him, because in his forbearance, he had passed over, passed by sins committed in the past, from before Jesus, from Eden, all the way up, up to Christ. He had swept them under the rug, as it were. Um, but that didn't take care of those sins. He can't just wink at sin and pretend like it's not there. He's just, every sin has to be accounted for and taken care of and paid for. It merely meant that he didn't punish those who committed them fully. Now in the person of his son, Jesus, he did, right? So Jesus's sacrifice on the cross wasn't just proactive. It didn't just, he didn't just pay for sins of those who, who look back to him in faith. He also, um, anyone who was ever safe in God before Jesus, um, Jesus, Jesus paid for their sins retroactively as well. Um, okay, so... So let me just read the full verse again. Whom God put forward, Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former <laughs> sins. Okay? So to be a God who, who seems to be ignoring past sins and evil, that doesn't show God as, as righteous. That doesn't show God as just. A judge who just has been letting He's been letting sentences go. He's been letting people that are guilty just go because he feels like a nice guy that day. That's not, that's not just. That's not righteous. That's not good. Um, and so Jesus came and he showed us that every sin and evil must be accounted for and paid for by God. Um, this put God's righteousness on full display. The cross did. The cross does. Uh, not not j- As we talked about Weeks ago, toward the beginning of our lesson, of our time in Romans, um, the cross doesn't just show us the great love of God. It does show us the great love of God. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But what Paul is saying here is, and in this book, Romans 1, 17, here finally after he's been dwelling on um, how um, 
God's wrath is, is manifest against our, our unrighteousness. Um, but the cross shows God's great righteousness. It shows his great righteousness, inflexibility when it comes to sin. Um, John Piper, I remember like back in 1998 at one of the first Passion Conferences. I don't know if those are still going on, but they've been going on for decades. Um, he talked about this verse, and he preached a whole 45-minute sermon on just this verse, in verse 25, and just this aspect of why did God put forward his own son, Jesus, as a wrath bearer? It was to show, it was primarily before showing us how much he loved us. This is his argument. According to Paul, it was to show his own righteousness, right? The cross shows us first and foremost, okay, not, Piper said, arguing from Paul here, not even God's great love for us, although it does show us that manifestly in, 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 uh, in bright colors, thank God, but rather God's invincible, or in addition, his invincible, inflexible righteousness, his justice. The cross shows us God's holy perfections at full tilt, right? The cross means, and Paul goes here in verse 26, that God can both be fully just and can fully justify the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So he can, he can show that he absolutely takes care of all sin. It must be paid for. And we, as we look to Christ, don't have to pay for it because it's been paid for by Jesus. We can be declared just. We can be declared right in God's sight. Um, and God can say, I haven't let them off the hook. They've hidden in my son, Jesus Christ, who has paid for them. So then Paul says, and these, other, these last two points are very, very brief. The cross destroys boasting. Okay, what, what then, Paul says, becomes a boasting in verse 27? What becomes a boasting? Well, you tell me. What becomes a boasting? After... There is none. There is none, right? Literally... Paul says it is excluded. That's a pretty terse response. In the Greek, it's just one word. It's just one word. It's even, it's even um, more, more terse, right? What becomes a boasting? There's none of it, right? Absolutely nothing. Um, what is the effect of the cross of what God has done for sinners in Christ on our attitude? Does it make us proud? Quite the opposite. Um, it is excluded. Calcasis is the word in the Greek. That would be a great, a great word to put on a t-shirt. What does that mean? Awesome. Let me tell you. Um, or, to, or to put on our mirror, right? To remind ourselves every, every morning. Um, but boasting, Paul says, is, is completely and utterly excluded by the cross. I deserve the cross. He took it. I deserve the wrath of God. He took it. I deserve to pay my, for my sins. He bore my sin. He became my sin on the cross. He set me free. Um, I think of Keller's, Tim Keller's line, the gospel humbles me to the dust. It humbles us to the dust because it shows us that we haven't done anything to deserve anything but God's wrath. And, and what we get if we look to Christ is God's complete and utter favor. Therefore, we know that whatever hardship we're going through, it's not because God's angry with us. It's not judgment. It's not because of the guilt, guilt that we're bearing. He bore it all. It's because we're his children and he's giving us special treatment to make us more like his son because he loves us and he's going to be with us forever. And we're going to be with his son and we're going to be like his son and we're going to be fully in his embrace and we already are. We just can't feel it sometimes, right? Okay, so he's working on us just like we work on our kids because 
Christ changes our relationship with the Father. He brings us back into the family. Um, but Keller's line, the gospel humbles me to the dirt and it lifts me to the stars at the same time. Right? It's, it's like I have no ground for boasting. And so I can't, I can't feel superior to anyone. No one. And I also have this amazing understanding that I'm that loved. I'm that worthwhile to God. Uh, and so it, it, it grounds me. I don't have to look for human approval. Um, I, I don't have to um, look for approval in my performance, in my, my job skills, in, in, in my education, and anything else, right? Uh, in my beauty. Um, okay. And then verse 28. So what becomes of our boasting is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith, right? So it's not... The gospel is the opposite of us working to make ourselves right before God. Rather, it's looking to the one who, who, who was right in and of himself and through his obedience and, and took our sin upon himself and gave us his righteousness and his record. Um, verse 28, as we wind down, see John. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. For we are justified, my commentary, declared righteous or right with God, not through our works, not through our obedience to God's law. So the cross destroys boasting, point two. And then finally, point three, the cross justifies all. If you look at verse 29, as we continue and and draw to a close, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, Gentiles also. This shows us how God is God of both Jews and Gentiles. We've, we've talked a lot about that in past weeks. Paul's been talking about it. Um, but with so much talk of the Jews from Genesis 12 on, from Abraham on, all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the Jews are the people of God. They are the people that God has given the, his oracles to, his word to. Here's how to live. I've made you my people in covenant. I want you to tell the world what I'm like. I want you to show the world how beautiful and good I am. They fail on that. Jesus comes and he fulfills what the Jews didn't fulfill as God's true son, right? And he brings Jew and Gentile into sonship. Um, but it's easy with so much focus on the Jews as God's people from Genesis 12 onward for most of, the, most of the Bible, most of the Old Testament. It's easy to forget Genesis 1 through 11. It's easy to forget that actually God made everyone. <laughs> no one is made that isn't made by God. So, of course, he's God of Jews and Gentiles. And in Jesus, he, he provides a way, not through our works, but through his work and through faith in him, in his sacrifice, in his life, and his death, and his resurrection, that allows anyone of any stripe to be um, justified, to become his child through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, how does he do this? Since, since both are justified the same way, through faith in one Savior, one lawkeeper, one wrathbearer, Jesus Christ the righteous. Um, Paul has been establishing universal guilt owing to unrighteousness of all men and women. Now he established, establishes universal righteousness for all men. Received what? How? How is universal righteous, How is righteousness received? Is it received through works? It's received through faith. The open hand of faith in one man, Jesus Christ. Um, and then verse 31, finally, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? So he's like, is, the, is this faith contrary to the law? Do we overthrow it? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So does this nullify, does this gospel that declares us righteous and actually makes us as he is through faith in him, does this nullify the law? No, rather it upholds the law. The gospel shows the force of the law. 
The gospel shows how the law had to be kept perfectly in its entirety. And how does it do that? How does the gospel show, um, how does the gospel uphold the law rather than canceling the law? Because Christ upheld the law perfectly. Yeah, and it, and it, it, it shows that, hey, you can't, it's not, it's not enough for us to try to keep the law the best we can. God can't flex on that. It's his character. It's what he requires. He, he can't, he can't be with, he can't be with lawbreakers, right? Um, that it has to be punished. And so the, the gospel shows us how the law has to be upheld and how lawbreaking has to be punished. And it shows us in the placarding of his son, Jesus Christ. Um, and so that's one of the things you can actually use in conversations with conservative Jews and with most Muslim is that one of the, um, one of the, one of the um, arguments that they'll levy against a Christian is that you guys don't take obedience seriously, you don't take the law seriously, you don't take, really, let's just boil it down, you don't take God's holiness seriously. And this, what Paul is saying here is the heart of the gospel, a right understanding of the gospel actually shows quite the opposite. That if you think that you can get to God through your perfunctory law keeping, you have a very low view of God's holiness. The cross shows us how seriously God takes the law, how seriously God takes holy living. It doesn't, it doesn't, it allows us to be declared just, but it also shows how just he is in the way that Christ was punished, but he was punished in our place. That's, that's what we deserved is what he took. Um, and so it is the only way, it, it is the only way for us to be saved. Um, to, to wrap, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, just to, just to remind ourselves of what, of what he said that I started with. I say it with trembling, but sin is a problem, even for God. Um, if you look at the Bible's history, and we won't take time, um, if I'd had more time, I, um, I was going to kind of rattle through a few minutes of sort of the history of the Bible, but it's a sordid history. The Old Testament is a sordid history. The Old Testament goes out of its way of showing the sins, foibles, and evils, just like, just like we just like we evidence of uh, in, in the Muslim scriptures, in the Muslim conception, every prophet is, is perfect without sin. Uh, in the Bible, every prophet, every patriarch, every man and woman, the Bible goes out of its way to show. And, and I wish I had a little more time, but I think you, you may or may not be familiar with, that, with the Bible story. Even the best of them, Abraham. Lied, lied a couple times and, and endangered God's, God's promises to the whole world through, through him and his wife, Sarah. You know, said she was his sister. Sarah, Pharaoh and the Abimelech, I believe, the, uh, the king of the of Philistines, tried to take his own, Abraham's wife for themselves because Abraham lied to save his own skin. David, man after God's own heart, commits adultery, gets his, uh, uh, basically murders his, his bodyguard and one of his good friends, takes, takes, takes his wife for, as his own. Um, and on it goes, and on it goes. Um, the Bible, uh, and I'm not even, I mean, yeah, just the whole history of the Bible shows us how sinful we all are. We cruci- <laughs> when God came to save us, we crucified him. Now, there's no better way of saying it. Secular history is a history of wars. The 20th century, uh, closer to our own day, is, is, the, is the, by far the bloodiest century um, on record. Outside of, outside of wars, at least 100 million were murdered. 
Um, I think, you know, Stalin tied a rope around Ukraine and starved 7 million people. Hitler killed 6 million Jews, not to mention gypsies and, and the infirm and the, and the elderly. Um, um, Pol Pot um, and his killing fields in Cambodia. Um, um, Mao Zedong, 50 million dead. Um, uh, as I mentioned, Stalin, at least 20 million dead. And, million unborn children. Yeah, yeah, 60 million, exactly. We're not exempt. Uh, when we take, try to take uh, any sort of um, human rights high road, I just cringe because of the fact that we've killed 60 million and counting um, through abortion here in this country. Um, and I'll finish with this, uh, and then let's have a little Q&A, and, and we can sing on with Amazing Grace. That was my plan. I figured we could, we could all at least work our way through the first couple stanzas without, without words. But um, one of the things that D.A. Carson does in an essay and that he writes on, on this sort of idea where we – we who, who best at the end of this 20th century should have empirical evidence to believe in evil have, have said, oh, there's no such thing. How, how dare we? He goes, how evil that is to be able to say that. But he talks about the Germans in particular. Um, and he says, you know, before the 20th century, before Hitler, the world knew the Germans as the best educated, the most enlightened, the most cultured, I'm not directly quoting, the most urbane people on the planet. They had the best universities. They had the best technology. They had the best research. Um, they had they had the most sophisticated culture. If you've done any, if you know anything about Europe at all in the 19th to 20th century, you know this. There's just no denying it. Um, we're no better. Okay, look look what look what the best of the best when it came to um, secular humanism. Look, what's going look what turned Harvard out. Look what's going going on at Harvard and MIT with with let's just kill all the Jews again. Yeah. You know those kind of phrases. Um, look what's going on with in our own in our own country with abortion and on and on it goes. Right, we're no better. The cross shows us this in living color. It shows us our great evil and it shows us God's greater love. I don't know of any other worldview, religion, or philosophy that is so honest and so hopeful, so devastatingly honest. If you're a Christian that believes what the Bible has to say about the dive that we've taken, you will not be. You might be shocked, but you will not be surprised by your own heart or by anything you read in the news. Yeah, we're capable of that. Mm-hmm. We're capable of that. Not because God made us that way. He made us as his image bearers, his dearest of his creation. And when the angels fell, that was it for them. But he, he chased after us, entered history, chose to be born poor, was rejected by us, and placarded on a cross, bearing the wrath of God out of his great love for us to rescue us. That is how great, he, how much he loves us. It humbles us to the dust. It lifts us to the stars. Um, the cross shows us God's unfiltered righteousness, not to damn, damnable us, but to save us by damning his son, Jesus Christ. And of course, he rose to show that his payment for us was sufficient, was accepted by the Father. What, what wonderful, what a wonderful reality. Um, let me let me close in just a brief prayer, and then we can do a little Q and A, and maybe we can sing out um, before we leave. Lord, thank you so much for um, just this amazing, amazingly um, powerful, ponderous, hopeful, realistic, beautiful gospel. This good news. This good news. That. You, Jesus, came to save us completely and to remake all things by dying on a Roman cross and bearing the wrath of your Father, which was directed at us, but you stepped in between us and you took it. You took what we deserve. And that, 
You, you did it for all who look to you. The Father put you forward as a demonstration of his righteousness. Yes, of his great love for us. Um, as, a, as, a, as a bearer of his wrath in our, in our place. We bless you. We love you. We thank you. I pray that this would sink down deeply into our hearts. This would change us. This would make us deeply, deeply grateful, joyful, would set us free, would help us to understand that um, take heart, we're far more, we're far worse than we dared imagine and we're far more loved than we dared, than we dared hope, than we dared dream. Um, I pray that um, the gospel would continue to work on us and, uh, and change us and, and then bring people to you. Will we be, will we be witnesses, will we be proclaimers of, of what you've done in Christ. We bless you and... Uh, we, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so a little time for Q&A, and then uh, maybe we can sing out with a, a, a verse from Amazing Grace. Hit me. What do we got? Why did I bring pears? <gasps> Why'd you bring pears? Tell, yeah. tell us. What, what, is it a holy day? What's going on? Did you make those? Yeah. Is today because it's St. Augustine's birthday. Is it? Yes. Yay! Hey, that guy. Tell him the story. Tell him the story. So I don't can, know. I, can I have one? Yeah, of course. Um... So in, in his confessions, Augustine tells a story about how as a young man, before, well before he became a Christian, he and his friends, as adolescents, wow. they, they climbed the walls into this guy's garden, and they stole the pears from his pear tree, but rather than even eat them, they just tossed them. Mm-hmm. And so years later, when he's writing this, Augustine remarks on this episode in his life, and, he, and it illustrates to him the fact that he... He just wanted to sin for the sake of sinning. Right. He loved sin. He's like, I didn't even like pears. I didn't even like pears. Yeah. <laughs> why, why, why? How can you not like pears? These are amazing. You haven't yeah, had one? I'm good, right? Very good. Thank you. You to share your recipe. Wait, today's his birthday? Yeah. Okay, what's the I mean, version? I don't know if it's the... I was t- telling you where... The traditional age. The 13th? Today. We don't know if it's a Julian calendar if you're going. <laughs> ah, right. Hey, November 13th. You know what? Yes. My, our, my ninth grandchild... This is his birthday, one-month birthday today. His middle name is Augustine. Oh, look at that. Oh, that's cool. cool. So, he's not, yeah. so he's an October baby. Yeah, October 13th, is that right? Yeah. Um, what's his birthday? Anyone know? It's in November. November 29th. Hey! That's our sister. I know when he died, he was the 22nd. <laughs> that's right. Seeing he was Kennedy almost 65. Have you read in, uh, Between Good and Evil by Peter Kreeft? Peter I haven't Kreeft? read it, but I know the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so Aldous Huxley... The British agnostic philosopher, uh, writer, uh, JFK, and C.S. Lewis all died on November 22nd, 1963. Interesting. Same day. Wow. 60 years coming up. Okay. Dang. Wow. Okay. Um, Thanks for the pairs. Very good. Happy birthday, St. Augustine. Happy birthday, St. Augustine. I think the lecture today would have, anyway, the text would have chuffed him. I wish he could have given the lecture. Um, if you haven't read Confessions, do it. What a wonderful book. Um, I, it makes me want to learn Latin. Just, I have a bilingual text of Confessions, and I'm trying, but it's not going very well. But man, well, what a writer. Too? Yeah. <laughs> but his Latin is just... It's translated oh. into English. Yeah. Um, it, it's, good to, it's good to find a good translation. Um, and his prose is phenomenal, and, and it's the first of its kind that no, he created a genre. Nobody had ever done a confessional like that, an autobiographical confessional. It was the first of its kind. Pretty amazing. Read it. Um, what else? We got, let's get some questions in. I got one. Come on. Um, 
So this might be going off on a little bit of a tangent, but you were talking about the high priest going in to sprinkle the blood to, um, to be the symbol of propitiation in the Old Testament. Um, do we know where we got the idea that they would tie a rope around his ankles to pull him out if he died? Because that's not in Leviticus or anywhere. Right, and I because of that, I had heard that for years, and I don't know where I... And I, I had begun to question it, and then I actually read it in a reputable... I can't remember recently, like two weeks ago, I read it, which is a reason that it came out of my mouth today. Because I haven't said it in a while, because I'm like, yeah, is that apocryphal? Is that really... Let me, let me hunt that down. I, I don't know. Somebody else here might know. Let me open it up. Does anyone know? Seems logical. No. Right. Because but I mean, it, do, it also kind of sounds apocryphal. But in the most holy spot. Let me see if I can trace it because I remember reading it going, okay this, okay, this is a source that I trust. I guess this was legit. But yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. But it makes sense if you can't go in after it. It does make right. sense. You know, it makes yeah. sense. Some way to get them out. We'll try to, we'll try to, we'll try to trace it. This guy next year can get his Body. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> what else? Something, something in the text. Something that. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm still mulling over. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it's a lot. It's, it's the heart of the gospel. I mean, that's, that was the alternate title I gave to this, this lecture. It was the heart of the gospel. It's wonderful. To me, it's like we know that we know. It's all about faith and. But when you explain it in so many details, I guess it really grabs. Yes. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So Amen. Amen. What else? Anything? Any questions? You guys just want to get out of here. I know it's late. By the way, on that note, last week we had a few faces that were, as I was lecturing, I was like, wait, there's some serious fatigue going on here. And I realized afterwards, I'm like, oh, that's because the time change had just happened. And it was all like 10 of the equivalent of 10 o'clock to it. So, oh, man. <laughs> so well done that you came last week. Well done coming this week. I know there are a lot of other things you guys could be doing, but, but uh, honestly, how lucky are we to get to be here yeah. unpacking this amazing, amazing word from God about what he's actually done in Christ. Uh, anything else before we sing out? We'll sing a stanza of Amazing Grace. I figured that Amazing Grace was appropriate. Pretty amazing. Okay. Well, we'll end you. It's 859, so we'll end right on time. Um, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I God bless you all. Thanks for coming.